Morning, everybody. Morning. To be honest, that's way more energetic than I'm feeling this morning. We'll get back to that at the end. Uh, a couple of announcements before we dive in. We have a uh, fall work day coming up. And if you're like me, you thought, you know what I want to do at 9 a.m. on October 27th is, is help out. No, I, it, <laughs> no it's, 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 it's good that we do these kinds of things. Uh, it may seem like not that big a deal, um, but God has given us space uh, to steward uh, for the purposes of his kingdom, and so it's a way for us to join together and do that. Also, uh, in the first service, Zach uh, was like crying. He's so desperate for help. So if we could just, you know, throw him a bone and like show up and help him, that'd be good. Uh, I think you can sign up in your bulletin. Um, I didn't pick one of those up today, but I've been told you can. Secondly, uh, our s second fall family night is coming up in about a week and a half. Uh, we're going to do kind of a, a prayer walk here in the building, different spaces set up for us to be able to pray for different things. We'll be able to share a meal together. Uh, to join in prayer and in song. Um, I was blessed by the first one, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that time coming up in about a week or so. So just put that on your radar as well. All right, so we are in week two of this series called Common Prayer. The, the goal here is to look at psalms in a way that gets them touching down into real life, um, bring them down into the way that we live today. Uh, so... That's kind of our goal. We sat with this psalm coming up. I'm going to read it in a minute, but we're looking at Psalm 19 today. And on Mondays during, um, during staff meeting, we sit with the text for the week coming up to just to kind of reflect on it together, uh, kind of think about what it is that God might be saying to us personally. Because um, if you've ever been in ministry, you know that if God hasn't done the work in your life before Sunday shows up, probably not going to happen. It, like, it has to happen before, because uh, then all the details and stuff are going on. So that's kind of our, our rhythm, is to try and allow that to happen. But we're sitting with Psalm 19, and everybody's kind of talking about how it connects with them in this way, or it touches down in their life this way. And they were all very different things, and it made me think at one point, there's like five different sermons here. Uh, so I'm going to preach five sermons this morning, um, and each... We, sermons are like 30 minutes long, so I hope nobody wanted to watch the Bears. No, I actually am going to preach five sermons, and last time I got it in on time, so we'll see if I can do that twice. Oh, the reason why I want to do that is actually, the more I thought about it, I actually think it's important. I think all of Scripture is always calling us into the story of God, all, all of us being called up into the same big story. But also, Scripture touches down in our life right where we are. It kind of holds that tension. And Psalm 19 is a really good example of that, I think. Uh, and so I've, I do want to do sort of five individual thoughts that I think come out of this text, just as a way of recognizing, you know what, sometimes Scripture hits us in different ways. And there's not just one way to land on a certain text. And so we're going to kind of model that this morning. Is that all right? Whoa. <laughs> uh, like you were going to say no. I don't know why we ask questions like that. Secondly, the thing is, too, I think um, at the end of each of these, like I want to ask a question for you to reflect on. Um, 
So I'm not just like teaching word by word through a, through a text here, but at the end of each of these things, I really want to ask something that prompts you to think about your life and where it lands, because um, otherwise it may just sort of pass over us. So I'm hoping that we can all kind of engage that reflective work together. So Psalm 19, uh, you may have heard this before. This is a Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In the heavens God has raised a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Except for South Bend in February. <laughs> That's not in the original. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They, have more, they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Okay, so where does this land in our lives? And I hope that in talking about five different things, we may find it landing with all of us in some way. First thing I would want to say, though, is this, that all prayer is simply responding to the God who has already spoken to us. All prayer is a response to the God who has spoken and continues to speak to us. If you have this out and you were to look at it, either in your Bible or on your app or however it is you're reading this, uh, David is saying all over the place ways that God is speaking to him. When David walks out in the world, he's surrounded by a, a physical creation that is declaring the things of God. When he opens up the word, I mean, he didn't really open it up, but he unrolls a scroll and he reads the word of God. He says, God, speaking to him. And I love how at the end he starts to, he's like, all of creation is speaking to me and the word of God is speaking to me. Now, God, please speak directly to me. I need to know what it means to live this life. God is speaking all the time. And this isn't just an, uh, an Old Testament idea. This is all over the New Testament as well. If you were to look at the very beginning of Hebrews, I think we have it here. The writer of Hebrews says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. In other words, God has always been speaking. But in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things and through whom he also 
made the universe. This idea is that God has always been speaking to us. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on the very thing that John writes about at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, that Jesus is the highest and greatest expression of how God speaks to us. And throughout the Scriptures, you have this constant refrain that God is speaking, God is speaking, God is speaking. Which means God is not trying to hide from you. God's not trying to hide from you. He's, he's speaking to you. And so prayer then is just speaking back. And I think that's important because sometimes I think we think about prayer as though prayer is like an incantation to get God to work. Or it's some way, we've got to pray a specific way to, in order to appease God. If we pray the wrong way, God might not respond to us. Uh, almost like there's a way of thinking about God where God is just far off from us. Or like God's a genie in a bottle and, and praying is like, how, how do we make sure that we get God to like, we've got to say it exactly the right way. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Have you ever sat in a room where people are praying and you're like, man, that person's good at praying. <laughs> yeah, okay, yes. I thought maybe this would be all of us. Man, that person is good at praying. Who cares? Let me walk that back. <laughs> when we're in a room and somebody prays and we think, man, that person is good at praying, it is good that we, we are in community with people who are so like in tune with God and passionate and saturated in the ways of God that these deep and meaningful prayers come up out of them. But if you're like me, when I think, man, that person is good at praying, it doesn't have that aspirational quality to it. It's actually intimidating. When the person is good at praying, it's not like, oh, I want to lean in more and learn to pray like them. It's like, oh, I better not say anything. And what that reveals is that we believe somewhere way down that there is a way of praying that gets God to do more than my way of praying. So when we sit in a room and we're like, man, that person, that's what I mean when I say, who cares? There is no such thing as a bad prayer. I want you to put it this way. Like I think I was thinking about it this week. I have kids. And if my kids thought that because one of the others had a deep connection with me because of some reason, like my middle son loves golf and I love golf. But if my older son, who doesn't love golf, thought that it was this connection with golf that prevented him from connecting with me the same way, that would break my heart. And if that connection with golf caused him to retreat further from me because he thought, well, this is why dad would love me, that would break my heart. That's the thing, right? <laughs> if, if looking around and saying, I can't pray like that person over there, causes me to retreat from the God who has been spending all of eternity speaking to me, it would break his heart. Like, that's just not how it works. 
Prayer is responding to the God who is not trying to hide. If the heavens declare the glory of God, then God's not playing hide and seek. So here's the question I would want to ask. In, in all the ways that we might be intimidated about prayer, or what we really think about prayer, if we were to consider the last few weeks of our life and evaluate prayer, what would change about it if the way that we engaged with God started with the reality that God has already spoken to me? I think it would... Think about what Clive said earlier. Like, we don't come to the table because we might feel like we are unworthy. We might not talk to God because we might not feel like God has a ton of interest in hearing from us, but God has been speaking to you and to me from the beginning. What would change about the way that we pray if that was really true and we really lived into it? I'm going to have to go a lot faster. <laughs> That was just one. Okay, two. <laughs> All prayer is a response to the God who has spoken. Two. Sometimes the burning bush is right outside your window. You guys remember that story of Moses in the burning bush, right? I'll tell you. <laughs> Thank you. Moses is in his little uh, sequestered period after he killed the dude in Egypt, and he's off in the desert. And he's walking around down the road, and this bush on the side of the road erupts into flames, and yet the fire isn't consuming the bush. And he realizes that this fire is the presence of God. And God right now wants to speak to him in this unbelievably miraculous moment. This is where he sort of takes his shoes off, right? Take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. You've heard people say something like this, holy ground kind of moment. Near as I can tell, that's the only time that's ever happened. And the problem is, I think sometimes we believe that that's the place where God is. In the burning bush on the side of the road, these incredibly rare moments, these like mountaintop spiritual experiences, God is in the burning bush, and he's not in the one right outside my front door. And so my encounter with God is actually this like quest for some sort of ultra-spiritual moment. Right? So we're all looking for God to show up in the most miraculous way possible. And God does that, but I think there's a different way to frame it. I'm not a big poem guy, but I'm going to read a poem here. It's only four lines. That's why I did it. <laughs> Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote a poem. It said, Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush is a fire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush is a fire with God. Hold that poem in your head, and let me reread the first few verses of this psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They don't have speech. They don't have words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Earth is crammed with heaven. Every common bush is afire with God. And yet we live in a world that is full of distractions and amusements, training us to think that things become obsolete. And so we need something new and fresh all the time. So much of society is at war with what David sees when he walks out his front door. 
is at war with the opportunity to experience the world God made, declaring God's greatness. Elizabeth said, only he who sees takes off his shoes. Only he who sees that earth is crammed with heaven recognizes that the entirety of creation is holy ground. Everybody else has just eaten blackberries, failing to see the world for what it is. This feels to me like the tension of living in our world, living with God in a world full of distractions and amusements, right? Like tons of things are just like the blackberries. This is what keeps me distracted. I think I'd have to seriously slow down to learn to see the world the way that David does. I'm just moving constantly to the next thing. And to be honest, sometimes the stillness of Prayer makes me reach for something that's like amusement or distraction or like just I don't want my mind to sit still for too long. But at the same time, I would have to re-narrate the world that I go through too. Let me give you an example. There's a tree on a corner very close to my house that was the first tree to change. So all the green ones around it and then this one is like on fire red. I'm not much of a tree guy, but it like stood out to me. I'm like, that is amazing. That tree is amazing. And it's right on the corner on my way home. And so I see it every day. And I thought about it this week. Every day I thought, that tree is amazing. That tree looks like it is on fire. But here's the thing. That's where it stopped for me every time. That tree is on fire. And it never once occurred to me that that tree is on fire with God. I think there is a way, sort of it, sounding almost cliche, to talk about how the created world gives us access to the glory of God, uh, particularly if you're not an outdoorsy type. Um, and I don't think there's any getting around it. You walk out into the world of the delight of God, who took amazing delight in making it. And when you look someone in the eye, you look someone in the eye who bears the divine image of God. And it is impossible to walk through a day without encountering the glory of God. But are we seeing it and taking off our shoes or are we plucking blackberries all the way through our day? This is the question for me. What do we see when we go out into the world and what would I have to change in order to see the world and the things that make it up the way that David sees it here? Third, I don't know if you noticed this, there's a lot of like surprising connections in the middle of this. If you were to read verses 7 through 9, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes, and the fear of the Lord is pure and enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm. All of them are righteous. So I'm caught off guard by the connections, if I'm being honest. Law, perfect and refreshing. Statutes, trustworthy and wise. Precepts, right and joyful. Commands, radiant and full of light. Fear of the Lord, pure and enduring. Decrees, firm and righteous. 
I don't think my first instinct is to think of words like law and statute and command and decree and then think perfect and refreshing and full of joy and radiant. Like if I, if you were, if I was playing free association and you gave me all those words, I would come up with a lot of different descriptors when I hear words like law and statute and command and decree. So I guess I would... If somebody said to you, what's the first thing you think of when you think of laws and statutes and commands and decrees? What's the first thing you think of? Because if you're like me, it's not the words David chooses. What is it that David's trying to say to us? There's probably like 10 different ways you could take this, but, but David's sort of like saying the word of God but then also, I think, drilling down very specifically into things like laws and commands and decrees. There's an impulse even in me that when I'm reading the Bible, like I love the parts that are, you know, stories of Jesus and these beautiful and inspirational things. Then I get to some of those parts of Paul where it's like, you need to not do these things anymore. You need to do these things now. And I'm like, you're not the boss of me, Paul. Uh, it makes me wonder, though, if God's goal in giving us all of his word, but then also the parts of his word that feel like legalism, like maybe that's not about legalism. Now, maybe what God is trying to do is something different than what we do. Like when we create laws and commands and decrees, Right? We're doing it because humans love to dominate and control one another. But maybe that's not what God is doing. Maybe God gives us laws and decrees and all of these things in order to set us free from ways of life that lock us up in something less than what he would desire for us. That there is a way of life that you, we could call light and life and freedom and that God is just saying, if you choose these things, that's, that's how you get there. But I would have to reassociate in my brain when I think about these kinds of things. When I come to the text, I have to reassociate when God is saying, let's live this way. I would have to retrain my imagination to receive it differently than that. I'm so legalist averse. So let's ask that question. What would change when it comes to God showing us the ways of God? When God is describing in his word the life that he desires for us and the life that he desires from us, what's our posture toward it? Because there's something very aspirational about the way that David says, no, when you give me these things, it is life and light and joy. And Number four, by the way, we're doing two and a half minutes better than we did the first hour. <laughs> Number four, uh, a genuine encounter with God invites us to confession and repentance. Confession and repentance, maybe not the happiest of words, um, but I want you to hold that thought off to the side for a minute. As David is, has said, the heavens declare the glory of God and, and the, the word that you give us, 
is life and light. And then his, then his response to that in 12 through 14 is, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep me also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. We have David encountering God, encountering the glory of God everywhere, encountering the God who speaks to him in all of these different ways, and he chooses to end the psalm with a prayer of confession. As he says, who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. It's almost a way of saying, like, I don't even know what I don't know here. I don't even know the ways in which I miss it. I don't even grasp the extent to which I don't know what you want from me, so, but forgive me for that even. And then he says at the same time, okay, there's a whole lot of things I don't know, but what I do know is that I'm a pretty stubborn guy. These willful sins, these sort of like, I'm going to put my heel in the ground and say, you know what, I'll do my own thing. Forgive me of that. Because for the way that I am doing this defiantly and for the ways that I am missing the mark without even knowing, if you bring these to light, I can be forgiven. And it's then that I can live the pleasing and good life that you want from me. I think genuine encounters call us to this. I was also thinking about um, the story of Isaiah. Has anybody heard that moment where in, in the book of Isaiah, God says, who will go for us? Who will I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Has anybody ever heard that, that verse quoted before? Here I am, send me. Well, that's actually the end of the story. The very first part of that story in Isaiah chapter 6 is that Isaiah has this unbelievable vision. He walks into the throne room of God. He has this almost face-to-face -face encounter with God. And his very first reaction is, Woe is me. I am unclean. And I live amidst an unclean people. See, Isaiah is showing the same thing that David is showing. A genuine encounter with God is going to call us to confession and to repentance. The beautiful thing is that in both of these, both Isaiah and David, the recognition is that confession and repentance doesn't come from a place of shame, and it doesn't result in getting the hammer laid down on us. Confession and repentance is the way that God restores us back to full life. That's what happens is that Isaiah is cleansed to the point where he can say, I'm ready to go now. I'm ready to be sent. This idea of repentance sounds like a big word. It actually just means to turn. So you have David seeing God everywhere, and he's like, you know what? I need to turn into that instead of turn away from it. That's confession and repentance. We're going to look at this a little more intentionally in a few weeks, but confession helps us respond to God, to the God who took on our flesh, became one of us. God is not just a transcendent, out there God. That in Jesus, God took on our form, came and walked our dirt roads alongside of us. God chose to locate himself in the midst of our mess. Which to me says this, when we encounter God, we should assume that he has put our, his foot in our mess. He stepped in it. He knows it's there. So don't try to hide it. What would be the point of hiding it? The God who you're praying to has walked the road alongside of you. He knows 
all of these kinds of things. And all he wants is to restore you to life and light. I'm preaching two weeks from now, sermon. Sorry. You still have to come in two weeks. <laughs> Question. What is it that gets in the way of confession and repentance in your life? What is it that gets in the way? David suggests that truly encountering God will call us to that. And that, that might be the best news we could hope for. All right, the last one. And this is actually the reason why I chose this psalm from the beginning. I think Psalm 19 is a psalm to remember when words fail. Do you guys know what uh, church face is? Church face? I know what church face is. It's uh, when you've had that kind of a week, you know, one of those weeks where everything is terrible, and then you've got to walk into a space where 200 of your closest friends are going to be like, hey, how's it going? And you've got to be like, great. Uh, that's church face. Um, and I say, so, but, it, but uh, that's connected to, I think, um, this idea where do you ever feel like you're, uh, you can't bring your whole self to God? You can't bring like the actual pain that you've experienced or the struggle or the trial that you're in, that somehow you have to get yourself to a new space in order to come to God. And so church faith sort of connected to this idea that like, can I, what if I just don't have the words today? Have you ever felt that? I don't have the words. Like, I, How am I supposed to come up and say, the heavens declare the glory of God, my life is in shambles. I joke with people, some of my friends like to call me a curmudgeon. I joke with people that I am constantly looking for ways to make that okay. Um, they're like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, this is just my face, actually. Um, <laughs> I want there to be a spirituality for curmudgeons. Um, but but here's, here's why I say that. Because I think the essence of being a curmudgeon is this combination of this deep pain connected with the way that life is not as it should be for me or the, the world and this deep, simultaneous idealism for the way that it ought to be. And when those two things collide, I don't know what to do. Right? When I see these kids getting taken away from their parents at the border, like I don't know what to do. And that's happening, and like, how am I supposed to come in here and be like, no, I can't. I don't know, I'm, I admire people who can. I cannot conjure the face. Some of us can't put the words together sometimes, right? Some of us are experiencing things of deep pain and deep disillusionment and deep discouragement. It's not belligerent. It is a depth of discouragement that we just cannot conjure the words. But here, here is some good news that I have discovered. In the times when I can't find the words, or in the times when it feels super false and fake to say them, in the times when I just can't bring myself to say, everything is great, God is fabulous, if I wake up and I know I can't find the words today, that's okay because the trees and the mountains and the seas have got my back. I may not be able to say much, but I can rest in the fact that all of creation is picking up the slack on my behalf. 
Sometimes I read Psalm 19 and it increases the pressure. Well, if the trees and the mountains are doing it, why can't I get there? Just flip that around. The trees and the mountains are doing it. It's okay if I can't get there today. It's not a permanent answer, I don't think, but I do think it relieves the pressure to try and force myself to a better spot. That I can count myself as a part of the choir of all of creation, and all that choir is singing the praises of God right now. It's just that my sheet music has a few rests on it today. The soaring song of the sun is what's taking center stage today, and I can be cool with that, because God's cool with it. This is also anecdotally, why we need the church. It's not just about what happens in this room, but when we walk into this room, there are going to be sisters and brothers in our midst who cannot find the words. So I put it this way, when you can find the words, it is not just about you and God. It is about shouldering up underneath a sister or brother who can't find them. For those of us who can't find the words, we, we can look around and we can say, you know what, I can't find the words today, but all these sisters and brothers can. So what I can do is say amen next to them. Some days that's all I got is amen right next to you. And on the days when that's all you got, I'm going to give it a little more. Right? Right? Because if there are days when the mountains and the seas and the trees have got my back, then sisters and brothers, we've got to have each other's back. We can all join our amen to the choir of the cloud of witnesses all around us. We can be thankful for sisters and brothers and trees and mountains who shoulder it when we can't find the song to sing ourselves. Let's pray. God who speaks. We are a room full of people who cannot wait to speak to you and a room full of people who can't find the words some days. It's all sort of a big mess in each one of us probably. I guess my prayer for all of us, God, is that you would help us believe that you are speaking even before we've spoken and that that demonstrates the extent to which you want us to know you and that when life has its way with us that, uh, that you are still there and still speaking and that we need each other. Uh, that we can support one another in this way even uh, as we limp along in our quest to know you more, to speak to the God who has spoken to us. So we do give you praise. We do give you praise and we do give you thanks for all of that. And we are thankful for your grace for us as we respond in sort of fits and starts along the way. Amen.